which is easier to catch, a baseball or a handful of sand? A baseball, thank you, it's not a hard question. You know, you ask questions in church and everybody sort of freezes up like there's a trick in here somewhere. I know he's gonna pull it on us. The baseball I wanna throw this morning is singular one item. We wanna ask the question and the reason they're tooling together out on the porch to bring us a definition is, I want you to be able to answer one question by the time you leave today. Am I a disciple of Jesus? Some of you believe you already know the answer and that's great. But if we give you some criteria today of what a disciple is and just define it somewhat and then re-ask the question before we go home, my desire simply is this, that each one of us be able to go home saying yes or no. Doesn't, the, the answer is yours. Hopefully, of course, yes is our goal, but if it's no, you could know definitively that you are not one, and then you could figure out how to become one, right? Or we could help that happen. But if I'm a disciple, it will remove some of the spiritual warfare that goes on in your life when the enemy comes to tell you you're not one. You could actually open your Bible, if you want, at the end of today, to this one section that's, you know, we call it Genesis to Maps. Just kidding. There's usually a blank page somewhere in the back or in the front cover where you might be able to just write in, as I have, a date and put a little note that says, this is the date that I settled the question that I am a disciple, okay? Then when the enemy comes and says, you're not really a follower of Jesus, you're a loser, you're a bum, you're a failure, you can just open your Bible and say, it's in my Bible. <laughs> it says right here, I am a disciple. And then you can also show him the scriptures as he reads over your shoulder. And I guarantee you that as he begins to read over your shoulder the scriptures, he won't remain with you very long because he does not love the word of God. Amen? And so you can give, as the Bible says, the devil a case of the fleas, right? Resist him and he will flee from you. Of course, play on words. But uh, you can cause him to leave you alone because that is your authority as a believer and a disciple. So I simply want to answer the question together. Am I definitively, by some criteria, a disciple of Jesus or not? Okay? So Father, you know above all things I need your help. Uh, you know how excited I am inside, Father. You also know how much caffeine I drank. Oh my gosh. So I need you to calm me and to Holy Spirit to guide with your grace and your peace our conversations here today so that it becomes the baseball and not a handful of sand. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 3. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. I'm impressed these days that we don't hear as much page turning anymore because there's so many electronic Bibles. But... I want to speak first for the first few minutes here about the 12. And we all know the 12, or we may not be able to name them all, you know, like doing the seven dwarfs. doesn't matter where I start, I always miss one. Uh, so I'm sure if I started with the 12, I'd miss at least two, and maybe you would as well. But the 12 that Jesus called, and here's what it says about them in chapter 3 of Mark and verse 13. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they, now, 
Bible students here, let me ask you a question. If he appointed 12, do you think maybe there were more than 12 in that group that he called? Sometimes I just like to stop the train and look at it for a second because sometimes we reduce it to there were only 12, but that is not the case. Other gospels say Jesus came down from praying all night and went to a group and picked out his 12 that he had already talked to the Father about. And we know he included Judas. That's history for us. But they didn't know at the time that he was a traitor. But Jesus did. Amen? So there were more than 12, but out of that 12, he, or out of that group, he appointed 12 that what? The next sentence. What does it say? That they would be with him. Any other designating them apostles? Okay? And there's a difference between disciples and apostles. That they might be with him, this version says, and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. The 12 have a unique advantage over you and I in Scripture. And that is, they were bodily present with a bodily Jesus, with a flesh, human, indwelt God-man was right there. They could touch him. They could eat with him. They could fellowship with him. They could sleep near him. There was an advantage they had that we don't have. In fact, there's one of the Jesus films that was made and I really like this one, but I can't remember which, which who was a campus crusade for Christ or was it who, who did it. But there's a point when he's walking along the, the beach with his 12, and he comes to that part that we know where he says, and even a tax collector. You know, so, and the inference is like, can you believe it? That a tax collector, well, Matthew was the tax collector who's walking the beach with Jesus. And in this depiction that they gave, it says, and even, and Jesus stops and goes, and even a tax collector. And he tackles Matthew into the sand. And he's giving him the noogie. <laughs> and the rest of the disciples pile on, and they have this little dog pile on the beach. And they're having fun together. He goes, ah, even a tax collector. And Matthew's the brunt of the moment. But you get the feeling that these guys are just living life together. They're walking together. And they're having fun together. And Jesus is growing them. So the first advantage they have as disciples is that he called them, chose them to be with him. Secondly, he called them to be learners. In Mark chapter 4, it says, And again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And they taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Now, I don't want to read the passage because you get lost in the parable of the sower. But in verse 9, he concludes by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Exclamation point. That's important to me, the punctuation. But when he was alone, verse 10, those around him with the 12. Remember the 12 that he wanted to be with him. Now he's alone with a group, and the 12 are there. The 12 asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside all things come in parables. Jesus called them to be with him as disciples. Jesus would teach the crowds in parables 
but then he would go into the home. And hence, life groups, home groups, small groups, cell groups, whatever we call them. There's that place of intimacy where we gather with the 12, and Jesus says, let me tell you what it means. Or as a friend of mine, Jim Faye says, let me explain it to you. Because they didn't always get it. But he called them to be with him, number one. And two, he called them to be learners. The word disciple in the Greek is mathetes. You want to say it? Mathetes. Greek students, all of you, look at that. Mathetes. If we take the first four letters of the word and spell it in English, it is M-A-T-H, math. Mathetes, if you will. Math, what does that infer? Logic, reason, hard work, application of thinking. You've got to give yourself to it in order to learn it. Okay, trouble's coming back. Mathetes, they were called to be learners and to receive directly from him in teaching. Okay, they're coming back. Number three, for them in Matthew chapter 10, disciples are called to Jesus to be with him. They're called to him in order to learn from him. And they're also his to send. In Matthew chapter 10, it says, when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. In chapter 10, well, let me give you before we lose chapter 9, look at verse 10. He called his twelve in verse 1, sent them out, right? Gave them authority, sent them out to do these things. In verse 10, the apostles, when they had returned, told him, all that they had done. That's significant. Chapter 10, verse 1, After these things the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and the place where he himself was about to go. And then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Verse 9, uh, verse 8, excuse me. Well, probably should just read on through that. Let's go back to verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, or sandals. And greet no one along the road, but whatever house you enter. I'm going to put a little mark in my column right there because another place in the Bible that talks about house church. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Verse 9, and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Verse 17, for this group, it's a different group, right? Verse chapter 9 was the 12. Go out, heal the sick, preach the gospel. Tell them the good news. Chapter 10, 70 more, or 72 as some verses versions say. Sent them out, do the same thing. Heal the sick, eat in the homes you're sent to, a workman's worthy of his wages, uh, preach the gospel, tell them the good news and that the kingdom has come nigh them. Nine, chapter 9, verse 10, I'm trying to do a little teaching. I'm not a great teacher, but I'm an okay one, all right? Chapter 9, verse 10, he says, when, they, when the 12 came back, what did they do? 
they had, when they had returned, they told him all that they had done. In chapter 10, the 72 go out, and they come back in verse 17. And then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This, for me, is the fourth part of discipleship, as we're talking about it here this morning. First, he called them to be with himself. Second, he called them to be learners, mathetes, math students, logical, reasonable learners. Third, he called them in order to equip them to send them out to do what his work was to do. And fourth, they were accountable. They came back and said, here's everything that happened. Jesus, even the demons were subject to us in your name. There was a point in this process when every disciple is accountable to the master. They give a report. How have I been doing? Here's what's been going on. Those are four things that apply, I believe, to disciples and to us as uh, disciple makers, as we're called to make disciples, right? Matthew 28, go into all the world and what? Preach and make disciples. If you're going to make one, you probably ought to know what one looks like, right? So these three groups have just come in to give us definitions of what a disciple is so we know what to make how to make one or at least primarily it's not definitive this morning it's not exhaustive I hope it's not exhausting I hope but they're gonna give us those reasonable definitions in just a moment Matthew chapter 10 verse 24 is something to bear in mind when talking about disciples and discipleship Jesus said a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. I saw, you know, as you're changing pages on internet and all those crazy ads line both sides of what you really want to see. And I was looking at a particular video and I noticed it on the, it was in a news channel and down on the right there was a picture of a guy in a white robe and I glanced over as it built to get your attention, glanced over and wondered what that was because it looked like a Jesus thing, you know? So I glanced over and said, this guy thinks he's Jesus. <laughs> And I thought, I'm not even going to play that video. I mean, they're coming. They're here. They're around us. And Jesus said they would be. I mean, but the guy, you know, the white robe, the whole thing, I thought, wow, he's already here <laughs> to tell us he's Jesus. And I thought, well, oops. He, you can't be equal to Jesus, is what I'm saying. A disciple is not above his teacher, his leader, right? Servant's not greater than his master. But we do know that in the parables, Jesus taught that a servant in the house can take the place of a son who's unfaithful. There's room in the kingdom for everybody, and he does call us to be his own. Okay, so I'm going to switch to a handheld, I hope, wherever that went. There we go. And could we get our three group leaders to share with us their results? Come and share your results. A disciple is a believer who has been called by Jesus and is committed to following him. In fellowship with other disciples, the disciple is growing in his or her walk with Christ as a student and as a teacher. Well, give those guys a hand. That's, that, was, uh, that was great. That was great. You want to go next? And thank you for... Thank you. First of all, we have an awesome group. They came out with all kinds of stuff, and then it was putting it all into just 
a brief sentence. Okay, a student, a disciple is a student who has decided to follow Jesus, who is equipped by the Holy Spirit and devoted to the principles of the Lord, who is being changed into his likeness while being accountable to other disciples in a community of other believers, sharing the good news and loving one another. Floyd, you've changed. I am not the group leader, but I am an example. But I'm an example of submitting to the leadership. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> and okay. being available and willing to do what the master and my leader tells me to That's do. That's great. So. Wow. <laughs> Living examples. So. One who has been transformed or being transformed into the image of God through being fully committed to the master and his teaching and living a daily encounter with the Lord, the infilling of his Holy Spirit, his presence, in such a way that leads to a transformation. This involves commitment and surrender of all we are and all we have to Jesus and is demonstrating a life source rather than simple behavior modification. Oh, my goodness, that was, that was great. We may need copies of those. Whoa, okay, that was tremendous, tremendous. And what's the point? Why did I ask them to go through that process? My point is simple. If you've been a believer, of what I tried to make this point a year or more, um, you know enough already to be able to answer the question, am I a disciple of Jesus? Right? If you've been around that long, 12 months, 6 months, a year, more, every one of us should be able to answer that question, not only for ourselves, but for someone else. And we should be able to do it from the scripture. I know that that's a bigger part of the challenge is like, well, which ones can I use? What verses, what portions? But it really is the fact that you are doing what Jesus did with his disciples, and that is you're spending, he's called you to be with himself. He's called you to be his friend. He wants to spend time with you. Now, let me rehearse the four things with the disciples, and I have this in two lists on my page. I've got... As you look at my page from your side, I've got the 12 over here, and then over here I've drawn a line, and we're on this side, because we're not part of the 12, are we? Literally not one of the 12. If we are, I want to know which one of you is Judas. <laughs> he always gets the brunt of it, but. So over here, the 12, we just went over, and while you were out of the room, I'll rehearse it for those that were out of the room. Number one, Jesus called them to be with himself, number one. A disciple, someone Jesus puts his hand on, finger on, says, I want you to be with me. And they spent time together, laughing and eating and teaching and training. And that's number two, that he called them to be learners. He called them into what Pastor Rob talked to us about recently, is that that rabbi and follower, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi because you're following someone. Jesus said, come and follow me. That's the answer of the first answer of the disciples, to follow not just anything, but to follow him. Come, if you're heavy, 
laden, you're worn out. What did Jesus say? Come to me and learn of me. My yoke is easy. My yoke is light. Come and be a learner, number two. Number three, when you've learned something, you are to be sent out with the message. Sent out with the truth you've come to know. Sent out to share with others the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. And gospel simply means the good news. We're supposed to be sharing that good news with others. And four, there is accountability involved. And we demonstrated that with Luke chapter 9 and 10. And in Matthew where he sent them out, the 12, chapter 9 Luke, and they came back and reported everything that happened. Then the 70 went out. And they came back and said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So there was an accountability process between the leader and the disciples, right? This was their simple for me four-step process. Again, not exhaustive, not trying to do everything in one message, just trying to throw the baseball. Am I one or not? Okay, so that was their list. But I want to change a couple things on this side, our list, where we're the disciples now. Us. We don't have a bodily present Jesus to call us to spend time with himself. After the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, what do we have on our side of the line that equates to number one, where Jesus said, come follow me? He still says, come follow me, right? But it's a vapor. How do I replace number one on my side of the resurrection? Hmm? Does this sound like a trick question? Holy Spirit, faith. We approach the invisible Jesus by faith. Amen. He gives us the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1. I think I'm ahead of myself in my notes there, which is rare. Acts chapter 1. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, which is Luke 14, 49, I believe. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which, are, which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. The empowerment to be the disciple and to be the witness and to be the one that proclaims the good news comes now on this side, after the resurrection, from the indwelling presence of God. The, the, he said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He is resident within us. By invitation, God himself has chosen to dwell inside of you. Wow, you should just like sit up a little taller when you hear that. And it's like, hey, as one teacher said in the Old Testament, we had a visitational relationship with God where he would come and anoint and then depart. Prophets, the anointing would come upon them. The spirit of God would come upon them. They would prophesy and then he would lift. Think of Samson. And his problems, right? Has the Spirit of God departed from you? Or, you know, kind of a visitational. On this side of the line, it's called habitational. He comes. He takes up residence. He does not leave. 
oh, the enemy wants to come at times and your own mind wants to come at times and maybe even some of your so-called friends at times want to give you sentences that remind you that he can depart from you. Tell that to go to the pit. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Those are two different things. We probably don't have time to talk about this morning, but leaving, I can leave you and I can come back to you. But if I forsake you, that's forever. Jesus promised in red letters <laughs> by his own testimony, and it makes me want to cry. And then my nose can run for purpose. <laughs> that he will never leave me. And he will never forsake me. So when I go to, back to the other side of the line, the disciples who had a bodily Jesus to live and sleep, and I ask funny questions of my own. You don't have to be like me, but I wonder, did Jesus snore? <laughs> what did he like to eat? Did he ever fudge on kosher? No. I don't think he did. He was the son of God, son of man. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> but over here, I go to squeeze him, and he's not squeezable. As Sue said so appropriately, we approach him by faith. We know that he lives. You know, the biggest and greatest proof that there is a living Jesus is the transformation that happens in your life. When you stand in front of someone and they say, there can't be a God, say, well, excuse me, I think you're mistaken. My life has been transformed. And I could not do that on my own. I tried. It didn't work. And then he came. There is a God. And he changed me for the better. He released me from my sin. He released me from my penalty. He said I could go free. And I didn't deserve it. That transformation for me is proof enough that he lives. may not be proof enough for somebody else. But that is my testimony. And I have the same testimony, and you have the same similar testimony as the disciples in the early church when they were standing in front of others, giving their accounts and giving their testimony. The only credit they were given is that we perceive that these guys have been with Jesus. Amen? They say, we perceive these guys are scholars. We perceive these guys. These guys are fishermen from Galilee. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Bunch of fishermen, but we perceive that they've been with him. That's what changed them. That's what took every one of those first disciple apostles to martyrdom. And that, by the way, you may want to add to your list, is that the end of a good disciple is that they're willing to suffer martyrdom for the leader. That never gets a rousing amen. It never gets an applause. It doesn't even hardly get a smile. That's okay. But for us on this side, May I quickly demonstrate for you and I what I have, what you have, instead of the bodily Jesus, okay? This is it. I can touch you, and I can touch you, and you. This is the body of Christ. Amen. Now, why is that important? Not just for some emotional movement on my part, but because I don't have what they had on their side of the resurrection, I have you on this side of the resurrection that is the body of Christ. It is the demonstration of Jesus in the earth. It's what he said, not what I said, not what you said. 
We run into people who say, I don't need the church. I would have to say, you're a liar and the Bible proves you wrong. Not me. You need the church. You need the body of Christ. You need fellowship with others. And we heard it, didn't we, in these three definitions. See, anybody that's been a Christian for a while picks that up. I have to have that peace. Even if we don't understand it, I'm trying to bring a simple understanding this morning that over here, bodily form, over here, the body of Christ. Each one being indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, don't you know when we get together, we're just one loaf? When we talk about communion, we talk about tearing apart, we say the body of Jesus, but it represents that when you eat your piece and I eat my piece, the only way for those two pieces ever to become one again is for you and I to dwell together in unity. And then we become the body of Christ. And you can do it in a home. You can do it in a larger meeting. You can do it in Starbucks. It's noisy there, but you can still pull it off. You can do it in a lot of places. You can do it in your car. You can do it in the forest. But I want to draw a line because it's like the story of the little girl who's said, Daddy, we're going to church today. She's got him by the hand. Daddy, we're going to church today. Says, Honey, we can go to church. We can be with God in the woods, you know. She said, yeah, Daddy, but we won't. Smart little girl. We can. Sure, God's everywhere and you can be with him anywhere. That doesn't excuse you from going to assemble yourself with others who are the body of Christ. Hebrews 10 tells us that. Forsake not. Forsake. Jesus wouldn't forsake you. He's asking you, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together as is the manner of some. And the more so as you see the last days approaching. Do we see the last days approaching? In general, we say yes. Very specifically, I say yes because I saw a guy that thinks he's Jesus. <laughs> and he said those guys were coming toward the end to confuse and to lead people astray. So it's here. Over here, all of that on number one. We need the body of Christ. We need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We need his daily, daily, moment-by-moment moment presence to be disciples. I want to see if I can proof text and back that up. Oh, gee, Matthew 18, 20. How about that? It says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And that is definitely proof texting because it's not in context. And a context or a... A text out of context is a pretext, something like that. Anyway, proof texting. But it's still true. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst. Haven't you done it? Haven't you been together, just dinner, a few friends, a couple, another couple, two, three people, and have just that moment where you go, he's present. We, we, it's not that we gather together in the name of something else that he shows up. It's when we gather together and say, we're here in your name. We're gathered here on purpose with you. that he says, I'm in the midst. And it's always exciting when it becomes manifest. When you, everybody kind of knows it, feel it, sense it, confirm it. Number two on this side, did he call us to learn and grow? Just like these guys over on the other side of the line? Yes, First Peter chapter Two, this is significant to me on the issue of defining a disciple and answering the question, am I one or not? First Peter chapter 2 says, wow, I have to back up here into one. Sorry, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, 
Love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, and I love when there's a therefore, you have to look in front of it and find out what it's there for. That's why we read those few verses. Therefore, knowing the things we just commented on, laying aside all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babies, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Beautiful picture here. I, I mentioned earlier I teach nurturing, nurturing parenting classes. One of the things we point out that seems so obvious is that of all the species that exist, the human species is vulnerable. When we're born, if someone else does not take care of us, we will die, period, okay? Some other things will survive. Some other species may survive or find a way to do it on their own, but we must be cared for, we must be nurtured, we must be held, fed and those and there's all kinds of things that fall out when those things don't happen correctly which is why we teach the classes we do you know we could talk about the studies and i've been to russia and i've been to orphanages where kids were not touched for the first two years of their lives and it's it is horrible to see a nearly two-year-old infant sitting all by itself and just rocking and maybe knocking its head on the wall because there's a giant piece of them that was never taken care of and nurtured and ministered to and just held. And a lot of the, you that work in the medical industry know that now even in some hospitals where you have preemies and prenatal issues and all that, that, uh, that when those little babies are born, they get somebody to hold them if they don't have parents. They get somebody, a nurse or somebody to go, even volunteer grandparents will go into hospitals, sit in rocking chairs and hold babies because nurturing touch is so absolutely necessary. Because if we don't get it, we get messed up for life. Peter says, hey, as newborn babies, we come to Christ that says we're born again. We're newborns. And the hardest part of reconciling some discipleship issues in the church is that you can get a 45-year-old baby. You can get a 20-year-old infant. Are you following me? They become born again. They ask Jesus to come into their life. And there's two people now you're dealing with. The one that has matured in the flesh and knows how to dress itself and feed itself and get to work on time perhaps and all kinds of other, go to school and graduate, et cetera, et cetera. But inside of that person is this infant that unless it's cared for will die, unless it's nurtured, unless there's a desire for the sincere, simple, another word for sincere, simple, milk of the word of God. They don't, we don't want to get somebody, lead them to Jesus and say, now we want to study the book of Revelations. I mean, it's just, just too much. All we need them to know is he wants you to follow him today. He wants you to call upon his name today. He wants to speak with you today. Listen for his voice. Here's a simple passage. Read the gospel of John and walk with him. Say, well, I go to hug him and he's a vapor. Oh, that's okay. You can come to my house on Tuesdays. We have about 10 or 11 people that get together. You can hug us. You can touch us. We'll share together. 
and see if our formation of the sincere miracle of the word is coming out with correct doctrine or whether we're just off in la-la land. You know, we forge one another in ministry. We forge one another in bodily Christian growth. Have you ever had anybody tell you, as I told Pastor Rob, there was a group, <laughs> a group this week that I was talking with. They're very familiar with one another. They work together in the body of Christ, they, and they get together in their off times. They're just growing in Jesus together. And one of the guys had a complaint in the group and said, you know, rah, rah, rah. And the guy sitting next to him, in my mind, because I was thinking on the terms of we forge one another, you know, forging anvils, hammers, heat, all that. Just in my mind, this guy grabbed his hammer and went, bam! And just smacked the other guy verbally and said, are you kidding me? That is like the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Get it together over there. You can't be thinking like that. That is nowhere in the scripture. That does not line up with Jesus. That does not manifest the love of God. Pack it, buddy. And I thought, man, he, he hammered him. Why did he hammer him? Because we forge one another. Why do we forge one another? So we stand the test of time and heat and battle and pressure. Try that on your own. When would you ever pick up your hammer and smack yourself? Huh? Seriously, even verbally, even metaphorically, you wouldn't do it. You think, you're, you think too highly of yourself. You you get on your own far enough out away from the rest of the body of Christ and you actually believe you're right. And then you can get a white robe and say, I'm Jesus. We are called by Jesus one another to one another over here. Filled with the Holy Ghost and the body of Christ. That's why we have all the one another scriptures that came after the resurrection because we have to practice living together formulating each other together, anviling one another, forging one another, balancing each other, learning to be our part in the body of Christ, learning to bring our gift in ministry to the rest of the group, learning how to operate that giftedness inside of a group where maybe I'm an oddball and others don't understand me, but at least they won't forsake me. Amen? And they won't leave me. Calls us to learn and to grow. Third, he calls us to be filled with himself. As we read in Acts chapter 1, don't go out without him, right? Who else don't we go out without? Chapstick. <laughs> American Express, that was the two. American Express and Chapstick, you know? American Express, Chapstick, and Jesus. Probably not a good formula, but, and hopefully this will never be reproduced in some teaching format. Acts chapter 2, I think it's important to note in this somewhat teaching moment <clears throat> that when the Holy Spirit came the first time into the church and built the church on that day out of diverse persons in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, and Peter then stands up and preach his first Holy Ghost message, we call it, the first message under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and brings super conviction to those that are listening. He ends this in verse 36. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord of everyone's life. Christ was the word coming from the Old Testament, and that the anointed one. 
that Israel always forecast looking for, the anointed one will come. The anointed one, the Messiah, will come. Peter's removing any doubt, saying he is Lord and he is the Messiah, the one you've been talking about for centuries. This is the one. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the same one that was in chapter 1, Jesus promised, go, wait, be filled. The promise is to you and to your children and to who else? All who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Has he called us? Has he called you? This promise moves through the generations all the way to us. It's still a present day promise. Amen? So we can have the calling to come and be with him and his body. As newborn infants, we need to be in a family where we're nurtured and cared for until we grow straight enough that we can do it on our own. When we're a little more mature, and you can have a 45-year-old person come to Christ and be an infant, but they can grow like a weed, amen? In just a year or two, they can be maybe 18 in their spirit man, maybe 20, and they're already set to go, and you can send them out, and that's number three. You want to be filled with his spirit and sent out with the same message that the disciples on the other side of the resurrection were sent with. Amen? Or charged with, filled with the Spirit themselves, and then sit out. Be filled, be sent. The promise is to all of us. And accountability exists for us as well. I like the accountability that happens initially in small groups, in life groups. I like the fact that somebody knows me personally and can challenge me like this one, forge a hammer into my head if I need it, and say, you're an idiot. I said, well, if you were anybody else, I'd smack you. But you, I've given permission to call me an idiot if I need it. And there is fellowship. And I need to be hammered from time to time. I've been hammered plenty. How about you? Uh -huh. Are we like Jesus that I was wounded in the house of my friends? Right? <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13. And let me try and give you a little bent on this, these two verses this morning. Hebrews 13, verse 7, classic passages. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. That's a great verse for discipleship. Consider the person who's leading you. It says rule over, but it can also be translated lead. Remember those who lead you. What are we doing? We're following somebody else in discipleship first. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I'll be an example of him to you at the beginning until you really get to know him individually and personally, and then we'll go together. But for a while, you're just a kid. So keep your eyes on me. I tell parents in my parenting classes, you are the closest thing to God that exists in your children's lives. They don't know this expansive, all-knowing, omnipotent God that you know. They just know you. And you are supposed to be the living example of what God is like until they're old enough to find him on their own. That's a threatening statement to some parents. 
but it's still true. Keep an eye on those that are leading you, those ones that have spoken the word of God to you. Follow their faith, it says. That's discipleship. That's a learner. I'm going to figure it out by watching them. I'm going to look at the outcome of their conduct, and that gives me some real security in following Christ. Okay, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you or lead you. Be submissive. They're watching out for your soul as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. That would be unprofitable to you. Normally, these two verses are used to hammer down the authority of the church. And many of you have heard it that way. Obey who? Obey the pastor. Obey the bishop. Obey the, it's a denominational form of government. There's somebody bigger and smarter and stronger than you that wears a holy robe. And you've got to watch out and do everything they say. Can I give you this, these verses in a new slant? Please, take me as a heretic if you like. Uh, stoning in the parking lot at 1130. <laughs> Bring your own rocks. This is a scary thought. The principle in these verses is really no different than the principle of a family unit, if you read them with those eyes. Verse 17 is almost like Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is good for you. <laughs> okay? I have a four-year-old grandson. It's going to be four next week. Jet. That's his name. The last time I saw him, he quoted this Ephesians 6.1 to me. He said, I couldn't barely understand him, but he just rattled it off. <laughs> Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents to the Lord. This is good for you. He said, man, that's awesome stuff. What does verse 17 say? Obey those that rule over you. Be submissive. Think of it in a parenting family role here. They watch out for your soul. Parents watch out for their children. The older take care of the younger. I, I, my mind just is rifling through the New Testament right now and finding all kinds of verses like a computer-generated search that reminds me that this is not hard. It's throughout the scriptures if we'll find it and we see it. Parenting, and I'm not just falling back on my new job here, I'm just saying that it's so prevalent that the system in order in God's kingdom is very much like family, period. Where's the hard part for you and I? Just insert this a little bit. We live in an individualistic culture. We live in, in, a, in an independent, I mean, our country was founded on independence, right? This is gonna take a work to get these out. I need some help. Should be enough for everybody. Don't hesitate, gentlemen. Just start shuffling the cards. Thank you. While they're passing those out, I'll share a little thing that I had in mind to do this morning. I was gonna put up a row of tables here on the front. I was going to invite our young people to make an assembly line. And on this end, the first person was going to put down a blank sheet of paper. And this, the assembly line was going to make paper airplanes. So that the first guy did the fold, and then the next gal folded the next fold, and the third one finished it off, handed it to the fourth one, who was quality control. As it came off the end of the assembly line, they would inspect it to see if it was done right, and then fly it. And if it flew and hit you, you were going to bring it up and put it in a basket at the front that said approved. If it didn't fly, we put it in the reject bucket. Why would I do that? We talk about making disciples. We kind of think, think in terms of some sort of an assembly line where we put raw materials on one end and it goes through a series of things. Do we need more? Uh, a series of events to where when it pops out the other end, we go, oh, look, it's a disciple. Does that really work? 
yet most of the discipleship materials produced in the United States and the Western culture are built for individualism. I'm getting on a rant here. In other words, it says, you come to Jesus, here, take this book, read this book, do these things, and you'll become a disciple all by yourself. You know what? That's not what the Bible teaches. But it's what America teaches. And I might submit that it's what we've done, not only here at Christian Center, but in our individual Christian lives. We've been told that we can do it all by ourselves, and we generally try to. And when we get frustrated, it's in the point that we don't have that accountability project going on around us. We don't have people we can count on, talk to, and work it out with. And we're frustrated because we really are not built to do it on our own any more than an infant is built to survive on its own when it's born. It's just there in the Bible for all to read. So when this says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, they have to give account. Think of it like a family unit. Don't think of it as a strong-arm scripture for the church to make you obey the leadership, although that applies as well. There is that same level of accountability. But that means the leadership loves you, and they're watching out for your souls, and they're praying for you, and they're willingly put themselves in a place of saying yes to God and his church and leadership in order to give account to him. That's a big pair of shoes to wear. So we don't discount the meaning of it in the church. I'm just saying it flows easily through the scripture when you think of yourselves and myself as infants in Christ growing up in a family, learning how to be disciples of Jesus together. I'm going to preach this message again sometime. In fact, I think I'll preach it on March the 8th in Crestline at the Baptist Church in case you want to come. I'm not trying to steal your sheep. <laughs> but I'm realizing right now that this has to be a two-part message. And fortunately, I get to preach on the 8th and the 15th at Crestline. So I'm going to make this a two-part message and preach it down there. Sorry for you. <laughs> Just kidding. There is so much on this topic that we could continue. And I really wouldn't mind having copies of these definitions that were given this morning. I have some here, too, that I wrote. I mean, I wrote my own. There are others who have written short ones. How about this one? A disciple is one who follows Jesus, is being changed by him, and is on mission with him. That's a good one. But we can wordsmith it until eternity comes. But we need to become them now. So... Here's some things that Christian disciples do, and I'm going to ask us to answer the question before we're done. Am I one or am I not? This actually came from a study in 2008 done by the George Barna Group. So that's the Christian side of George Gallup polls, large polling group now, George Barna. In 2008, seven years ago, did a monster study on what discipleship meant and what churches were doing what. But he came up with this list of the people he sent out of the room and got back. He said, what do Christian disciples do? One, they embrace salvation by grace through Jesus Christ. Two, they learn and understand the principles of Christian living. Three, they obey God. Four, they represent God in the world. Five, they serve other people. Six, they reproduce themselves in Christ. And 
last, they worship God with sincerity, intensity, and consistency. Well, that was their list. That's their list. There are other lists to be had. If you go to Acts chapter 2, you get a list of what's called the six pillars of the church. And they are simply, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, evangelism, discipleship, worship and prayer, stewardship, community service, and relationship among ourselves as the body of Christ. Those are the earmarks and the, the milestones, the, the markers of Christian discipleship. To learn, to care, to fellowship, to worship, to evangelize, and to edify others. We could write these lists all day long. But let's just settle on, we could take any one of these three definitions this morning, or the one I have written here, one who follows Jesus is being changed by him and is on mission with him. What if we just take that one now at the end of our time and ask the question, am I a disciple of Jesus? Am I following him? Am I being changed by him? And am I on mission with him? Not my own mission, his mission. I'm going to ask you to answer that question. And I want to pray for you. Because I want you to catch that one baseball today, not the hand of sand. Right? One baseball. Am I a disciple? And just write it in your Bible, yes or no. If you're not one, maybe not carrying a Bible. So let's take care of that before you leave. We could do that. Let's pray. Father, you've given me this great privilege this morning of tossing out the baseball, asking the question, am I a disciple of Jesus? Am I following you, Lord Jesus? Am I being changed and transformed by you? Am I on mission together with you now as a disciple? Lord, help us right now to answer that question in our heart of hearts, in the very internal being of who we are. Lord, no matter what we look like on the outside, to others, help us to know you this morning. There are many of us in the room that are saying immediately yes. And I pray for these, Father, that are saying immediately yes, that you will take them deeper. Help them to become stronger. Surround them in an accountability system that gives them safety and protection and helps them to grow strong in you. Teach us your ways, we would ask, as the Old Testament cries out, and help us to walk in your paths. Teach us the way of life most abundantly. Father, for those in this room who are scattered in their thoughts and not being able to sort it out right now and not come to a solid answer, and cannot say, yes, I am a disciple of Jesus, I pray that you will break in to their reality with your great love. That by your mercy, you will demonstrate yourself to them in the next few hours, maybe in the ensuing days as we leave here. But make your presence and your reality unmistakable to them so that they can surrender their hearts to you as well. Lord, I pray that you'll make it simple for those who are too complex. Pray that you'll make it 
easy for those who have made it hard. And Father, I pray that you will remove any barriers or lies that come from Satan himself against them, that say they're unworthy or they're too much of a sinner, that there's just too much water under the bridge. Remove those lies and replace it with truth that your love is never-ending, that your grace is sufficient, that your presence is right here for them. And help them step in to your family. If you want to ask Jesus to be in your heart this morning, simply say this between you and him. Lord Jesus, I get it. You are the Son of God. I've run my own life up to today. And you know the results have not been that good. I ask you to come in to my life. Forgive my sin. Obviously, I've sinned against you. Take away the penalty of my sin and the punishment that I deserve. And I pray for your grace and your mercy to grant me life eternal. I want to live for you. I want to be that newborn babe in you. Put me with people that will help me grow. And Jesus, I commit my life to following you. Amen. Amen. It is that easy. It is that simple.